On the show today, Zoe Bulger, Impact Manager at Summa Equity. And with us is, of course, also my co-host Rainer Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. Today, we'll talk about leading despite ambiguity in the world of sustainable investing. But first, Zoe, I want to ask you, your job at Summa is really about integrating impact, ESG across the investment process and across portfolio companies and also the reporting side of it. So how do you feel a couple of months into this job and why did you pick Summa Equity? My background is in the social sector focused on supporting mission-oriented funders and organizations. And over the last few years, you know, we've seen, and we'll get into this, I think, as the conversation progresses, but we've seen the private sector and the financial markets really step up to the plate to help address some of the core sustainable challenges in society. And when I looked at that space and I saw some of the leaders, Summa Equity jumped right out at me. I was able to spend some time with a team at Harvard who's been leading on some impact work. And it was through that that I met Rainier and was really excited for the opportunity to come help Summa continue to lead and continue to push the envelope of what the rigor for impact needs to look like as we move forward in the space. So it was actually uh, in the class at uh, Harvard Business School, the Reimagining Capitalism class, where, where Summa is a case study and also our Norsky Envening, our portfolio company, is a case study. So it came up to me after the class and then we started engaging and she's been working with impact in weighted accounts and uh, Professor George Serafim HBS on this. So I have a fantastic background for exactly what we're doing and what we have been working on as well with, with Harvard. Fantastic, Zoe. Great. So let's talk about leading despite ambiguity then. So impact and ESG has been getting more and more uh, heat, uh, Zoe, seeing more kind of traditional actors coming into the space and, and lots of regulatory movement as well. What do you think are some of the challenges and shifts defining this moment? So I think to start, it's helpful to put a little bit more detail on what the heat, as you say, into the space is looking like. There's been a sort of historic movement on the regulatory front, and I think we will uh, get into the detail on this a bit. But across regions, we're seeing regulators begin to try and up the bar on what sustainability and ESG means in the financial markets. And that's, you know, in Europe, it's in the UK, it's in the US. We're also seeing a historic amount of flows into the space financially. So impact investing has surpassed uh, $1 trillion, and that's a pretty landmark number when you think about the impact investing world just a few years ago. And then zooming out more broadly to ESG-related assets, we've seen these conservative estimates suggest that there's $18 trillion in the last year, assets under management related to ESG. So really just a huge amount of capital coming into the space that's really exciting and also makes it clear, I think, that, that impact and ESG are here to stay, but it's not without complexity. So the political environment in the US has exposed the way in which we're still not sure exactly kind of what these terms mean, right? What is impact? What is ESG? How do we feel about them? And then on sort of the framework and guidance side, there's still a lot of complexity and it's a very fragmented space. So we're getting a lot more activity, but we're not yet clear on what it actually looks like to be moving forward as an impact investor or as a manager for ESG-related assets. 
Okay, so there is a lot of things going on, but what is the opportunity here? How does one continue to lead in a space that has so much energy, but also not full of clarity? I think there's huge opportunity and actually sort of an advantage to this moment before we've arrived at a complete set of standards and rules. And it's not to say that there isn't risk. I think namely greenwashing is a real risk. But for those investors and those companies who are serious about impacting ESG, the ambiguity, as you say, is a chance to define our path forward. And I think that more concretely, it's giving room for good efforts on values-aligned strategic approaches to funds without as much risk that the standards that will one day come into play sort of dampen or quiet the vision of these leaders like Suma, who are trying to say, we believe that there is an opportunity to invest with a focus on impact that creates value, that future-proofs our company. And so I think there's really an inspiration in the ambiguity. And if you drop down a few levels, when I think about standards as a concept, they're powerful in raising the floor, but they also often reflect the lowest common denominator, right? So if you look even at sort of the fintech space, where there are standards right now trying to shape corporate actors and investors on impact and ESG, one of those being SASB, a lot of the standards talk about data security, data privacy, selling practices. These are important standards and they wind up being universally relevant for an actor in financial technology, but they don't get at impact outcome. They don't get at financial health or financial inclusion. And that's because it's so hard to come up with a standard that would make sense across the board when we're talking about financial health and financial inclusion. So I say this because I do think the ambiguity for those who are truly intentional about impact will allow us to stay more aspirational. I also think the level of activity is demanding that investors find ways to differentiate ourselves. And I think that will create a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom. So I think it will help us make sure that this isn't a space defined by greenwashing. And for a place like Suma that's so entrepreneurial and I think has always been motivated by being at that cutting edge, we are allowing ourselves to think about how to become more consistent in our approach to impact. But the regulation doesn't have to be something that holds us back because we see ourselves as actually playing a role to show how the regulation comes to life rather than having to look to a full set of rules and standards on how to move forward. I have a lot of discussions with other uh, productive firms around sustainability and impact. And many are launching uh, impact funds and are also committing uh, in their main funds towards sustainability. And I wonder sometimes when I see how they're uh, the way they're doing it, you can call some of it maybe greenwashing, but is it a step in the right direction and they want to get somewhere, but they have to start where they are and they have to figure it out? Or is it just jumping on uh, a sort of a hot uh, bandwagon? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think in some ways time will tell. And that's part of the opportunity that I believe exists for Suma. I think the amount of capital that's flowed into the space in many ways, I think, reflects jumping on the bandwagon. Recently, there was an analysis done looking at some of the investors who've committed to the highest standard in under SFDR for impact. And most of those funds are just reclassifications, right? So they were existing funds that have been previously a lower classification and are now being classified at the highest standard. And in many ways, I worry that that's an indicator of jumping on the bandwagon of greenwashing. As the regulatory space 
becomes more defined as I think this increasingly becomes in the mainstream. Some of that will come out in the wash, as you might say. And I think my hope is that the investors, the more active owners in the private equity space in particular, will sort of come out through the clear as demonstrating what it looked like to meet that highest standard of regulation. But I think it will take a few years before we get there. And it's not a given. Certainly no. not a given. I had a very interesting talk recently with uh, one of the leading players in uh, hedge fund and public equity side and how they had incorporated now sustainability metrics as a core part of their uh, investment decisions in each company. This is about value creation and future-proofing the portfolio, and this does have an impact on valuation and, and performance of the companies. So it's more in the private equity space I've been sort of wondering uh, whether have some of the players that seems to be going in this direction really understood that this is core to value creation and performance going forward, or is it just, you know, because LPs and the world seems to care about it, so they need to show that they're doing something. I'm a pragmatic optimist, so I do think that the trend line will be incremental, but clearly moving us sort of up and over to the right when it comes to the rigor around impact and ESG. From a sort of learning standpoint, the sector is, is still in a learning phase. There's still a, a conversation around what is impact versus ESG. And we've come a long way, I think, in the average understanding of that difference. But I think it will take a few more years before we're able to have the really intense conversations related to what does it look like to invest maybe, as Suma calls it, in a transition company, right? A company that today doesn't have impact and what's the level of investment and maybe cost we're willing to bear up front to move that company to a, a leader in its industry, to somebody that's actually advancing sustainability goals and how do we begin to quantify the value creation that comes from that? And I think the reality is the data doesn't exist yet. The stories are beginning to bubble up, but they also don't exist in the groundswell that will be needed. Rainier, Suma is trying to be at the forefront and go, you could say, where others are maybe afraid to go, forging also a path for others. How do you stay the course despite this ambiguity? We're not trying to stay ahead and be at the forefront. We're just going in the direction which we believe in. And so it's not looking sort of sideways or looking back. We're just looking forward and what is the best way to do this. And for us, I don't feel that we feel this ambiguity. We've been clear on what we've been doing from the start. We're clear on how we do it now. You know, everyone at Summa has come on board because of the direction of travel and what we're doing. We have build a strong culture uh, around that. And if you look at how we're operating when we uh, evaluate a case, when we do the due diligence, when we do the strategic and value creation plan, this is all embedded. And it's because we believe that, you know, if you ignore the challenges that we have and you don't try to find solution of it, you will miss both the value creation opportunities and you will get some headwinds in areas where the world is changing. So we don't feel that there's that much ambiguity. It's super good that the world is sort of catching up and making a framework around this. And uh, there's still some ways to, they're not fully fledged yet. So we need the uh, chart and the territory and the compass to sort of be aligned. So Zoe, one of the key pieces of regulation is something called Article 9 of the Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulation, SFDR. And in recent weeks, it's been getting a lot of attention as funds are downgrading from Article 9 to Article 8. Can you help us make some sense of what this regulation is and what it actually means for investors and businesses? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's been an increased amount of focus on this regulation over the last couple of weeks. And 
I'll sort of step back and try in simple terms to make sense of what it is and then kind of what it means for investors. So in 2021, the EU Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulation kicked into effect. And what this did is it created a shared framework to try and facilitate sustainable investment with more transparency and standardization across financial markets. So a really worthy effort, and it requires the categorization of financial products across different tiers of rigor around sustainability and impact. So this is where Article 9 comes in. There's three classifications under the regulation. You have Article 6, which is the space for funds that don't integrate sustainability into the investment process or don't want to be held accountable to having integrated sustainability. Then the next tier is Article 8. And this is for funds that take ESG under consideration, but don't necessarily pursue impact or sustainability goals in and of themselves. And then the final tier, the highest bar on impact is Article 9. And this is for financial products that have social and or environmental objectives. So they're really trying to push forward impact as a core part of the investment thesis. And this highest bar is aligned with other regulation in Europe. Uh, the EU taxonomy isn't finished. So uh, that is part of at least what I feel is, is the ambiguity that SUMA has to navigate. But that third category, that Article 9, is sort of trying to synchronize across different sustainability regulations in Europe. And this is a big deal because it is, in theory, going to allow us to make sure investments go towards projects that are actually helping the European Union and other regions meet climate and social goals. You know, we, we live in a world that is fraught with many wicked problems. And this is one sort of way to try and shape the amount of financial flows that I described earlier to actually go towards the projects that we know have impact. But the reality is that that goal is a ways off from reality right now in, in how the regulation is showing up and being put into action. So as you mentioned, we're seeing many funds downgraded from having decided to be Article 9, that highest bar, and actually deciding we're going to be Article 8. We're going to go to just ESG consideration rather than having impact objectives as core. And in November alone, the statistics are pretty staggering. In the first few weeks, we saw 10% of Article 9 funds announce plans to downgrade. So it's a huge amount of investors that are sort of shying away from the opportunity to lead with an objective around environmental or social goals. And I think if you look at the macro of this, there's a real need for investors to stay the course on Article 9. It's going to bolster the credibility of regulation, and it's going to show that there is a way forward for private markets to be part of the solution on some of society's wicked problems. And I worry that the downgrades are sort of painting a different story and will keep more folks on the sidelines. And there's, of course, kind of what this means for SUMA, which I'm happy to get into more detail because we've been thinking a lot about it as we've chosen to sustain our commitment to Article 9 and our third fund. You know, since some of the wording around Article 9, and I, I look forward to Zoe that you will help us uh, to navigate a little bit of this, uh, you know, what's a substantial contribution? And so we, are, we have since the start looked at companies that are solutions to our problems. So we haven't done anything differently now that we are in Article 9 from what we've done earlier. But we have had, given the regulation, have to have much deeper discussions on what is a substantial contribution. And it could be things like, you know, we do a lot in the waste and recycling space. So waste incineration, if you look at sort of incinerating waste, that is classified as recycling and energy recovery. 
But in reality, if you look at it, and it's much better than landfills that you have methane gas and uh, it's much worse. But there's a reason why there was a landfill ban in Europe and why, you know, we're very proud of all these incinerators that are solving some of our waste problem. You know, we destroy 95% of the value of, of the waste compared to material recycling by incinerating it. And one ton of waste creates one ton of CO2. Just in Norway, between 6 and 8% of our CO2 emissions is waste incineration. That can't be a future solution. But it's a better solution than uh, landfills. But in my view, it's not a green solution. It's still a very sort of negative solution, but it's a step forward. So, Zoe, would that be a substantial contribution on the environmental side, or is it not? Yeah, you're getting at, I think, one of the core questions that that certainly SUMA has been wrestling with as we try and make sense of, you know, the regulation, but more broadly, maybe the philosophical questions around how to be an impact investor. And I think it may be unsatisfying answer. It really depends and, and it gets to some of the intentionality and the vision for where the company might be able to, to as you say, make incremental progress. So at SUMA, we've been trying to break down this question of substantial contribution which is still relatively unclear and it's not easy to quantify into some subcomponents. So it's things like what is the evidence base around the company today or where we might be able to make improvements. But I think part of what you're acknowledging as well, Rainier, is in the additionality component, right? So if you're in an industry that is brown or not particularly clean for the environment, how do you think about moving a company to the forefront of its industry, doing its work in a much more sustainable way. And that's both within its own supply chain, but also looking perhaps upstream and downstream of the value chain. And what amount of improvement would be sufficient? And I think what's really exciting at SUMA is we're starting internally to think about our own benchmarks of that. Progress in and of itself, you know, being 1% cleaner wouldn't be enough. But if we, you know, one of the thought exercises we can do is we can think on a global scale, right? If we're 10% more efficient, what impact if this company operated globally, what impact would that have on emissions, right? And how then if we crowd in other players who meet the standard we've set, what then becomes the ripple effect? And I think these are the types of thought exercises that need to drive the investment decision-making process where there is an opportunity to do perhaps what we'd call a transition investment. And it's one of the things that Article 9 isn't inviting yet because Article 9 is setting a really high bar. And I think there are going to be a set of investors who shy away from those transition opportunities, even though we know, you know, meeting our goals on emissions require not just new clean tech, but a transition of existing industries towards a cleaner approach. Yeah. So, I mean, incineration, if you see if, if the U.S. and other countries went to waste incineration instead of landfill, it will have a huge positive impact in the case that CO2 emissions will go drastically down. So that's one good step on the way, but it's still uh, CO2. So you're saying that, you know, on a relative basis, the world did, we would lower emissions. So then it would classify. And then you mentioned additionality. So what we're actually <laughs> looking at now is an incineration technology to utilize in Norske Envening, our, our waste and recycling company. And that has 100% carbon capture embedded in it. So obviously then, you know, if you invest in incineration and you have a, a plan for bringing down further the CO2 and actually to make it net positive, then that additionality is still a transition case. It's still positive from the sense that it will lower emissions if this was done globally. 
it's still a transition case. This is still negative uh, overall. But with the additionality that we have the intention and we are working through our additionality to really make it net positive, we'd also give it sort of an extra qualification under Article 9. Or am I wrong? Yeah, well, so I'm, you're touching on where Article 9 meets into the EU taxonomy a little bit. So one of the principles behind the EU taxonomy is thinking about that net positive or the impact across the value chain. So it's a spirit of we can't do sort of some good, high impact work in one part of the business and disregard where our value chain has really negative impact. And so I think what's exciting for SUMA is the way in which we are starting to think about the opportunities from the angle of net positive. And, and you've sort of cited one example within the portfolio today. I'll bring up another, which was our recent investment in Uda. This is a company that would certainly meet impact today. They're in the grocery retail space. They're an online grocer and through the business model are able to reduce food waste by almost half compared to a traditional grocer and cut down emissions as part of transport between homes and grocery stores by up to 15%. So those are compelling numbers right off the bat. But what we did in the spirit of Article 9 and EU taxonomy was ask, if we look at the whole value chain and where we're getting emissions from the food system globally, it's not enough to just look at the small piece where UDA plays directly, right? Which is sort of stocking and delivering food to your doorstep. We also have to look at the emissions that are accredited to the food we consume. And one of the sustainable development goals is around responsible consumption and production. And so there's an opportunity with UDA when we ask that question to leverage the online platform to help push consumers towards more sustainable products. And they're able to stock a wider array of products than the average grocer. And they're able to be much more nimble in how they understand the types of sustainable products that are popular among consumers. And so I think for me, what's really exciting in both of these examples is it shows the way if you're sort of up for the challenge of Article 9, how it might actually begin to reveal opportunities beyond the most obvious when it comes to thinking about how a business might advance an environmental or social goal. Yeah, this is one element of wicked problems. So, I mean, it's the consumer that actually chooses if he wants to eat meat or be vegan, right? So, uh, and then what we can do, we can nudge the consumer, but we can't control what the consumer actually chooses. So that's part of the wicked problem. We all need to go in the right direction if we're going to be able to get where we want. Rainier, I have a follow-up question um, around waste industry that we talked about earlier, and that is the power of collaboration. For example, North Yenvining and other big actors out there. Are they inviting each other to collaborate and co-create solutions together enough so that we can have a faster impact? So I think this is where uh, the whole thought about additionality is is important. So additionally, you know, compared to public equities where you have less influence over the companies, we own the companies. And hence we make the strategic plan and we set clear targets. And for Norsk Envinning, since they are in the waste and recycling industry and it's the largest player in Norway, we have developed a theory of change for waste. We have looked at it at the EU level, we looked at it at the Nordic level and a Norwegian level. So we have looked at, so what are the issues today around waste? And waste is coming from different players. Some is building uh, materials that is being uh, end of life. Uh, some are consumer products. Some is industry operating. So there is this large set of actors here. So we have looked at, so where are all the waste coming from? What kind of negative impact? What happens to it? How much is recycled? How much goes to incineration? 
And then we have looked at for each of these, what is the path to circularity? So that is some work that we are just finishing now and, and we're going to publish around this as well. And we're going to use this work we have done to gather all the important actors. And they are cross industries. It's a wicked problem because it's not an aligned set of actors. Some are suppliers, some are customers, some is downstream, some is upstream. Some are consumers that need to change behavior. And the regulatory part is quite important also to guide the direction of travel here. So we will use this work to build coalitions and maybe co-ownership in parts of the value chain in order to enforce circularity more. Some of it is already happening. So we have some of the large customers, especially on the building and building materials side, which we have created downstream solutions through Norske and Winning. So both on plasterboard, on windows and glass that goes to insulation. And, uh, and plasterboard create new uh, raw material and, and virgin material. And some of our biggest customers uh, and suppliers of the waste are also ending up as uh, reusing some of that. So, so we already have on some of the fractions, some coalitions, but this needs to happen across the board. And packaging is a big issue also. It's a very, very long answer to your question, which I could have answered yes to. So yes, we do have to work across industries and do more partnerships, co-ownerships, coalitions. The traditional supplier-consumer relationship needs to become a partnership if we're going to solve what is a wicked problem. Great. I'm really happy to hear that because all of those partners and collaborators and so on need to have that kind of mindset of that this is an infinite game, right? It's not about competition. It's about resolving important things and we can do it together. So, so we've been talking about wicked problems and wicked problems are problems that is not easy to solve because there's multiple actors that can have opposite interests and disaligned interests and they all need to go in, in the same direction of travel if we are going to solve it. And if you see what we have done at SUMA, so we started out with what we call private equity 4.0, which is to integrate sustainability and ESG into the strategy and the value creation plan of companies. But that's looking at one individual companies and how to make it sort of more sustainable and how to get growth through that sustainability focus. But in a wicked problem setting, that's only one actor trying to optimize, right? And that's not going to solve a wicked problem by itself. So what we have done now over the last couple of years is to be more both intentional and additional around a set of problems. And then we have to formulate a theory of change for that problem. And you taught me a lot about the theory of change and how to take a more systemic view of, of change. So since we've used the term theory of change a few times, why don't you explain to us what a theory of change is? At its most basic, a theory of change is the logic that gets you from the world we have today to the aspirational world we want to live in. And the rubber meets the road in how you begin to explain the way you as an individual actor, an individual investor, an individual company will contribute to the solution set, but also how you will act in concert with those around you. And I think there's two really powerful components to using theory of change as a way to think about your impact strategically. One is what I've already alluded to, which is recognizing you are a single actor that must and it depends on those around you and beginning to identify perhaps the low-hanging fruit and longer-term goals for how you might shift towards coalitions and shift towards an approach to the problem that is in concert with others. That doesn't happen overnight, but it begins to reveal the really critical opportunities to do that. I think the second way where it's really powerful is it can expose gaps in the logic. It can expose the places where we might be really focused on an output 
So we might be really focused to take it back to the example of an online grocer, the tons of food that aren't wasted through our platform, which is a powerful output, but it doesn't necessarily yet describe the outcomes. The outcomes are really around a much more efficient circular food system. And when you identify that gap, then you begin to identify the assumptions you're building into it. So assumptions like, well, our consumers, when they buy our food, are not throwing it out once it gets home. Or our consumers, by being on our platform, are choosing more sustainable products. And those are important assumptions. It's not to say we shouldn't make them. But once you've got them on the page, you can identify the couple that are really critical. And while they're things outside of the direct control or influence you have as a company, you might begin to ask yourself, well, what could we do nonetheless to have an indirect influence? And if we're pursuing that indirect influence, how is that ultimately going to be a part of getting to that aspirational world? And I think that that rigor in beginning to pull back the veil on one's assumptions and ask yourself the hard question of, even if this is outside my control, what might I do about it is really powerful. So Zoe, is there any question around uh, summa downgrading from Article 9 to 8? Or are you going to stay where you are? What is your next step? For Summa, in many ways, nothing has changed. From our very beginning, we have invested against a set of global challenges. And so for us, we don't have an intention of downgrading. Instead, we're working hard to become even more consistent and explicit about how we make investments aligned with environmental and social objectives. And so it's an exciting moment within Summa where we're building out a framework to think about this and to try and advance where the ambiguity exists in the regulation so that that doesn't stifle the work that SUMA wants to do. And, and we'll publish that framework and the key questions we're asking ourselves in the investment process externally to hopefully help some of the other investors who might be contemplating downgrading, see where there really can be rigor and consistency as an Article 9 fund, even before the regulation has caught up. And I think what's special about the way we're approaching it is we know whatever we come up with won't be the final answer. That's uh, part of the reality of the impact investing at ESG world today. But knowing that we don't have complete certainty does not need to bar us from moving a few steps down the path in creating a consistent and rigorous approach. And hopefully we can then get others to upgrade from Article 8 to Article 9 so that this ambiguity is uh, partly solved, uh, at least. Let's go into more of a helicopter mode. And Zoe, I want to ask you, what do you think the world needs most right now? So I have a background originally in psychology and global health, and I'll maybe reveal that side of myself a little bit, which is not the traditional path into an investment firm. But I think what we really need is empathy and a willingness to work across unexpected boundaries. So Rainier mentions the need for coalitions specific in the waste management industry, but I think it goes far beyond that, whether you're thinking about the types of blended finance and capital that might be able to work together to address the, the huge annual gaps we have going into investment for sustainable development goals, to the way in which we show up in a society that is increasingly diverse. It's so important to not lose sight of that empathy that allows us to look across and see a relationship that was perhaps transactional before, you know, a supplier or a customer into a partnership. I think if each one of us can bring that mindset to how we move through the world, we will be well on our way to solving some of these wicked problems. 
And Zoe, you were young, so I'm asking you if you had any advice to give to young people right now who are making choices to design their life work, whether it's education or work, what would you say to them? Yes, I am young in many ways, so I can't pretend to have the full wisdom. But what I've tried to do is trust my own instinct. I've found what motivates me in this work being impact and sustainability, which is really a belief in the connections between people. And from that, I've allowed myself to build what is a pretty interdisciplinary set of experiences so far. And there have been plenty of times where mentors or colleagues have questioned how my set of experiences add up to a cohesive narrative. And I'm really glad that at least so far, I haven't let those questions undermine my own sense of efficacy when it comes to advancing impact. As I mentioned in what I think the world needs, the willingness to get more creative and to get more interdisciplinary for these problems is going to be so important. So I would say if you're feeling inclined to learn a new skill that isn't directly relevant to your field, but you personally see a way in which it might help you tackle inequality go learn that skill or go take that job. And I'm pretty sure that in a few years time, the instinct you had about how it might help you be more effective will bear out as true, even if those around you couldn't see it today. What did you study? I studied psychology with a concentration in global health. And I was very focused on the way in which at a personal level, an interpersonal level, and then a community level, individuals and systems build resilience. So build the ability to navigate through challenges and also rise to the occasion of opportunities, which uh, is something that I still think about every day, even in a context as different as trying to make an investment decision or help a company advance its goals. So Rainer and also Zoe, what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode? I would maybe say that since you raised the questions around ambiguity, there might be some ambiguity, but if you if you really go into it, I think there is a clear path forward. So it's not uh, that hard, but you have to make some choices. So um, that would be my takeaway. Zoe? Mine sounds similar to Rainier's. I think it's an acknowledgement that there's a human tendency to want things to feel simple, to feel clear, to have a rule book, but that there is a very powerful path forward if we trust our instincts and we ask the hard and the rigorous questions, even despite some of that ambiguity. Great. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you, Rainer, for a great conversation. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.